Welcome everyone to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com Giants reporter. And we're here at the beginning of another important week. We got joint practices with the Patriots upcoming. I'll be there. I wasn't down on the ground in Cleveland. That's why we're going to have Pat Leonard on later in the show. He was there. We're going to go over everything that he saw while they were in Cleveland. Uh, The preseason game against the Browns happened. I'm taping this on Monday. So that was yesterday. And the Giants basically played nobody. Literally nobody. Uh, Maybe the most prominent player we saw that might make some sort of impact this season, Devontae Booker and on the offense and on defense, O'Shane Zimenez. So we saw positive things from both those guys, which I think is good. We'll get to that in a few minutes as well. But for a second, I want to talk about the idea of not playing their starters. And I know some people have complaints. What's Joe Judge doing? These guys need reps. And I'm somewhere in the middle. I probably could be swayed one way or the other. If you showed me conclusive evidence saying X way worked or or Y way didn't work, I, I think you could probably sell me on it. But the reality is there are people who have been successful with not giving their players preseason snaps. I mean, look at Sean McVay since he's taken over the Rams. He basically doesn't believe in playing his guys at all in the preseason uh, it worked pretty well for a young Jared Goff who blew up under McVay. Obviously, you know he reached his ceiling there, but they made the Super Bowl that year. It's it's worked the other way for playing guys in preseason game. Bill Belichick was never shy about playing Tom Brady in the preseason, even so. Uh, and the fact that Joe Judge is going to play his guys, the idea is this week against the Patriots, he's going to play his guys a half, maybe even a little bit more. So the idea he's not going to play guys at all, I don't think is. Accurate. So he's probably somewhere in between those two. And, you know, with joint practices being the way they are these days, they're the the reason why joint practices coaches like them better. Think about it. So let's say the Giants who stunk in the red zone last year couldn't score points. They want to work on red zone. They want to get red zone opportunities for their first team offense. Okay. So in joint practices, you could set up drills, live drills against the Patriots or Browns, like who they're going to go against. And say, here we go. We're going to play live red zone. Let's go. Here we go. We get 10 plays. Making up a number. And they run 10 plays. In a game, it's possible they never get to the red zone. It's possible someone breaks an 80-yard run. You might not get those red zone opportunities. So not only do they go live. Granted, it's not tackling, full tackling, full tackling to the ground. But they could run live drills out of the red zone 10, 15 times. Whereas in a game, they might get zero. So these two joint practices, and that's why you saw, I believe, Joe Judge take this approach with this second preseason game, because they have joint practices with Cleveland. They they worked hard. Starters got a lot of work. Preseason game. Joint practices with the Patriots. Preseason game. So if he played the starters, I think, in all four of those, and they got a lot of work in all four of those games, we'd be sitting here saying, Joe Judge is overworking his team. He's putting... Daniel Jones and all these guys at risk. They're already without a lot of their top guys. That's the other part of it. I think you have to factor that into the equation. Even if and when Daniel Jones plays in the preseason, he's going to be playing without Saquon Barkley and Kenny Galladay. We'll get to their health in a few minutes. But those are the two most two biggest offensive weapons on this team. Also, without Kadarius Toney and Kyle Rudolph. That's basically everybody they wanted to add to the offense this year. So if he's on the field, that's kind of what would be a repeat of what the offense was last year. So do we really want to throw him out there a ton without these top guys? You know, yes, the work is valuable, but it's also not really indicative of what the Giants hope they're going to look like this year. I mean, if they don't have Saquon Barkley or Kenny Galladay again, they're going to stink. It's going to be a bad offense. Daniel Jones is going to get his teeth kicked in. That hope is that those two guys are healthy in play and make that offense significantly better. And if not... They're in a heck of a lot of trouble. A heck of a lot of trouble. Now, as regards to Saquon, I don't know what I just said there. In regards to Saquon, it's still trending towards him playing week one. I think a couple weeks ago, maybe I had it at 62%. I'd say now I'm up to 70% that he's ready for week one. He's going to do a little bit more this week. We'll probably see him with a red jersey in some controlled environments in joint practices, which I think 
will be very interesting. All eyes will be on Saquon, see how he does in those. And if there's no setbacks over these next three weeks, I think there's a good chance we see a limited Saquon in week one. And by limited, I, I don't mean I think physically he's going to be limited. Limited in regards to playing time, limited. The Giants are not, and I have this sourced by multiple people over and over again for months and months, going to throw him out there and put him in for 80 snaps, a full workload. No, they're going to ease him into it and make sure they don't overwork him early. So the first four weeks, you're going to see Devontae Booker no matter what. And I think you had to like what you Devontae Booker got off to a slow start in camp, but I think you had to like what you saw on Sunday in the preseason game. He ran the ball well. He caught the ball well. That's what the Giants like about him. They like that he's a, they view him as a three down guy. So if Saquon's not there, he can play all three downs, have a full workload that can put him in there, and he's the guy. And Corey Clement is kind of next in line, but you know what? Eli Penny is competing with Corey, Corey Clement for that next running back spot. We've seen it throughout the whole summer. Eli Penny getting carries, catching the ball out of the backfield. So he's sort of like a fullback slash running back slash special teams. So that gives him some value. And their other fullback is Colin Gillespie. They have him as a fullback who, you know, he's not going to contribute that much on offense. But he's big special teamer for Joe Judge. He's basically running as their punt protector. The guy who stands closest to the punter, you know, far back from the long snapper. And he's the guy making the calls at the line of scrimmage. So that's an important role. Trust me, for the Giants, that's an important role. It's not out of the realm of possibilities that the New York Giants have two fullbacks, essentially, on their final roster here. I'm telling you, I would not be surprised if that were the case here. Most teams are going to have zero fullbacks. The Giants might have two, granted, with a huge slant towards special teams. But anyway, makes me think Eli Penny has a legitimate shot to be behind Devontae Booker, and Corey Clement could be an odd man out here. We'll see. Corey Clement also does catch the ball well out of the backfield, I think, that's sort of what he brings to the table. So it's going to be a decision for them. But where does Corey Clement fit in on special teams? You really going to have your third running back give you little to nothing on special teams? I don't know. It's going to be tough. I don't know if Joe Judge is going to go in that direction. Now, as far as Kenny Galladay's health, I think this is important as well. There's a lot of optimism that Kenny Galladay will be ready for week one. Giants are taking it slowly with him intentionally because what's the rush right now in the preseason, right? I know he has an injury history, which does make you a little concerned. But Kenny Galladay, again, also in line to play, start, and be a factor week one. If I have Barkley at 70% now, I have Kenny Galladay, let's say, at 78%. And I'm leaving room for if they either one of them goes and plays and does more and has a setback. That's why I'm leaving room for the alternative of them not being ready. There's always that possibility. I mean, that goes for anybody. Anybody can go out there and uh, pull a hamstring. But when you have a hamstring injury, you're also more likely to, to you know, tweak it. Or, you know, Saquon could easily, you know, be working. A lot of times you try to overcompensate so he could tweak his calf or something. So that, that's why I'm not saying 90, 95%. But the plan for both of them seems to be right now they're lined up for week one. Kyle Rudolph. I think it might be pushing it week one. Uh, he hasn't really practiced much. It doesn't seem likely that he'll be ready. Kadarius Tony, God knows. I mean, where they're at with him. All I know is I'll say this about Kadarius Tony. He hasn't done much consistently on the field in practices since he was drafted. He's been in and out for like a variety of reasons. Right now, it seems to be a minor injury or some kind of fall. Uh, Lasting effect from COVID. One of the two. Either way, he's not been on the field for full workouts. So even if he does ramp up for week one, it's hard to imagine this guy who has done so little on the practice field over the last four months coming in and making a significant impact early in the season. I really have a hard time seeing where is the path to him making a significant impact early in the season. Show me. Maybe they have they could throw in some trick plays for him, gadget plays where he gets the ball and it's easy that week. Okay, fine. But for him to be 
a consistent, significant contributor. The first four or six games, I have a hard time finding that path for him right now, considering everything that's happened. Now, I know people are like, well, Odell, look at Odell's rookie year. Odell, yes, what he did was insane. It was, to me, the single best rookie year ever because you're talking about not doing anything. I know Randy Moss like outperformed him, but Randy Moss didn't not do anything in the spring because he had a hamstring injury, not miss the first four games, and then come in and do what he did. So to expect someone else to do that, I think you're hoping for the almost the impossible. Like You're praying for the, the 1%. Now, we could list a gazillion other guys, right? There's the 99 other guys who missed time leading up to their rookie year and didn't make that kind of impact. Most of them didn't, you know, their rookie years started slowly. So the more likely result and scenario is that Kadarius Tony's rookie year starts slowly as well. But let's get into now what happened in Cleveland. We'll bring in our guest. On to the next one. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Let's find out what went down in Cleveland with the man who was there. The New York Daily News' Pat Leonard, one of one of my favorites. I know uh, we talked to uh, Big Blue Interactive a couple of weeks back. Uh, you you weren't one of his favorites, but uh, you're one of my favorites, Pat. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jordan. That's that's all that matters, right? That's all that matters. As long as I'm in your good graces, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we're not gonna we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that side of it of, of uh, what makes Pat Leonard. Likeable and unlikable. So let's stick to, <laughs> let's stick to the Cleveland part of the uh, conversation here. Um, I'm curious. You watched the two days of joint practices in Cleveland. Uh, what did you come away thinking about the team in comparison to watching them? Well, Cleveland team that's that's a pretty talented team, but without some of its top players, obviously Odell didn't practice. Uh, Miles Garrett didn't practice. Jadavion Clowney didn't practice. Obviously, the Giants and also some of their key, a lot of their key players didn't practice. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. You you pointed out an important point there. Obviously, not everyone was out there, but from a big picture perspective, I saw the same resilience in the team that we saw last year, where the team starts winless. What was it? Zero and six, and then actually make something out of the season anyway. Five, five. Put I their think you cheated him. I think you're cheating him one this time. Oh, and five. All right. Just made a few more enemies. Good. Um, but <laughs> it, you know, it was the same kind of fight where they went out there on the first day. And honestly, the funny part from me being on the ground was, yeah, the Browns won the first day, but more like they just won a couple key periods, but it wasn't lopsided by any means, but the Cleveland media portrayed it. I know one of the guys out there called it it said it looked like varsity versus the freshman team, which wasn't accurate, but I know that got the giants fans riled up on social media. And oh, for sure. certainly the giants players took personally, whatever they saw, heard, whatever their own coaches told them as far as corrections in the meeting, because they came out and laid it on the Browns on the second day on Friday. You know, I, I think in what aspects offensively, a- defensively, but like where, where in specific did you see, like, did you say, okay, that, that area of the Giants looks really good? The D-line, I think, you know, it was to the Giants' benefit that their strongest side of the ball was on the field first in the full team. And Leonard Williams actually was the, the guy who kind of led the way. He ran over a couple linemen, like didn't just win his battle, but literally knocked them straight back onto the ground. He actually hurt their backup center who was playing in, what was it, Nick Harris maybe? who's playing in, in place of J.C. Treader. Um, Your guess you know, is as good as mine when you're talking about a team's backup center, Pat. You know that, right? Yeah, but but yeah, <laughs> exactly. But Leonard Leonard ran this guy over. He even grabbed Baker Mayfield in the backfield. 
this was like 10 minutes after Joe judge had just told all of us, yeah, all our players know to stay away from the quarterback, you know, but it was certainly the giants were kind of showing some more chippiness than they had in the first day and just really not taking uh, the talk that was going around about who they could hang with and who they couldn't. Aziz Ojolari was probably, if you wanted to say like what player who you didn't expect to step up did in that setting, I think Aziz was the guy. Um, you know, I, think I talked had, to people within the team also. They said the same thing. Like, you know, he, he had a really good week of practice. Yeah, he, you know, he got the better of Jedrick Wills on some key reps in a goal line period. You know, Baker Mayfield with his patented, like very well executed play action. And Aziz didn't bite. He won at the line. He got back and would have been like a 15-yard sack in a real game. Um, and, you know, Lorenzo Carter, who you and I, we've been out there watching him do nothing, right? And, you know, he was on the field practicing full and showing some encouraging signs the way that um, he had last year before the injury. So there were other things that were good. Daniel Jones was very good on that second day, especially in the red zone. Um, Sterling Shepard and Evan Ingram continued their strong camps out in Cleveland against the Browns. But the the tone was set by the defensive line on the second day, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, that's big because we know that. I mean, we've, we've talked about it and we've sat there at practice and you're just like, man, that edge rusher group, like they need some of these guys to get out there on the field and do something. So to actually see it uh, is, is a, has to be a welcome sign for the Giants because that, that group has some of the biggest question marks on the roster. I mean, there's just yes. like, what is O'Shane Zimenez going to give him? What is Lorenzo Carter going to give him? What can they get out of Aziz? Like who else can, can they get to rush the passer off the edge? Like uh, that is a huge, huge question for this team. But uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Daniel Jones, right? It always comes back to how did the quarterback look? Uh, um, what, what were your impressions? You said day two was really impressive for them. So give me a breakdown of what day one was like for him. And then, and then day two, uh, obviously, the bounce back better effort? Well, day one was a lot of completions. I mean, he didn't throw a lot of incompletions in both days. I, that's the first thing I would say. Um, the Did first he throw an interception was, in the two days? Like in a yes, live drill? Threw, yeah, he threw a near interception um, on the first day in the middle of the practice that Newsom almost picked off over the middle of the field. And then he threw a pick on, it was actually the very last play of practice on the first day in the two minute drill, uh, he had completed two passes to Engram, but they called the first completion. They said he had been sacked. So it was kind of third and long. And he kind of tried to get Darius Slayton on the right sideline and Newsom dropped back in the zone and undercut the route and picked him off there. So that was the one glaring mistake. But, but you know, on one second, or two picks is not a crazy number for like two days of practice. It's not, that's not the end of the world. Like I think, it to me, it's usually alarming if there's multiple picks, two or three, three or four. Obviously, then you're really like, okay, that's a terrible day. But like, if there's an interception yeah. at practice, at one one a day, it's that's not really to me a notable thing. I mean, you do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And you know, to contrast it, Mike Glennon was throwing on the second day. He was throwing interceptions in seven on seven. I mean, he was having a really really tough time. Obviously, he was much better when they ended up playing in the game. You know, I thought he looked the most calm and poised that he has yet as a giant in this camp. But just to contrast, like what a good and a bad practice is, certainly Glennon was struggling and Jones was not. I mean, I, I've been giving the offensive line. We have been giving the offensive line a lot of grief, and I think a lot of it's deserved. So it would I'd be remiss if I didn't say Jones also had a lot of clean pockets. I mean, there were breakdowns, especially on the second day in the two-minute when they didn't have all their starters on the field, I think it was two sacks, a hold and a false start. That was with Slade at right tackle, Pert at left, and Larson at left guard. And he was the one who false started. But for the most part, I mean, and you know, you know how it is too. It's not just about, it's not, we're not talking three step drops here. I'm saying that when Daniel Jones was dropping five steps and didn't have his first and second read open, there were several plays where he still had time. So, you know, obviously Garrett and Clowney weren't practicing, but that was encouraging to see, you know, and I, I think that's why the Giants should feel really good. And probably part of the reason Joe Judge didn't play a lot of his starters or any of his starters on either side of the ball. I think they got really good work in against some quality players up front, especially, and kind of acquitted themselves, at least in the short term. 
Yeah, I really um, would love but, to see Andrew Thomas against like a Miles Garrett and Jadavian Clowney, though. You know, like I know that that know. that's just that's like the ultimate test. Though, like he had three snaps against Carl Lawson, they were okay. Uh, yeah. You know, so I mean, I just want to see him. Okay, how how's he going to be against this? You know, real against top competition because he's, that's what he's going to be facing every week. But hey, at least he did yeah. the job, and that unit did the job against what was put in front of them. I think that's the positive thing. You can't grade them. You can't deduct from their grade of how they did based on, okay, mm-hmm. we didn't get to see him play, you know, Jadavian Clowney or more likely really it's Miles Garrett. I want to see them against, but uh, you know, right. nobody, nobody, nobody could really stop Miles Garrett one-on-one, but you want to see if anybody can like battle him and hold their own. So uh, no doubt. But I, and yeah, the, but I mean, yeah. It's encouraging that this was, this was a better week from them. And then this week against new England will be a good test. I, let's see. I'm curious your thought as we stand here. What uh, we're taping this on Monday. What we got like just about three weeks till the season, right? One, I guess, one day less than three weeks. Your level of panic for the offensive line at this point is on a scale of one to ten. Is what? Well, if if ten is you, you know, absolute panic, I would say I'm at a seven. Um, you know, I mean, maybe I, you know, I want to say very high because I know not only that they need to make an upgrade, but based on what Joe judge, Dave Gettleman and John Mara all have told us publicly in front of a microphone, they know they need help too. Uh, you know, Mara couched it a little bit and said that they need depth, which wasn't exactly what I and some others have said that, you know, they, they need some upgrades at the starting positions, especially maybe at guard on the interior. Um, but I do think they intend to make an upgrade. They just don't, you know, it's, it's not obvious how they can do it yet. Do they have to wait for teams to make cuts? Uh, do right. they have to wait into part of the regular season to do it? But I certainly think that, um, you know, here's what I would say. Uh, Thomas and Gates, I think, you know, I look at them, I see them as entrenched. And I don't know if what Thomas is going to do when the lights turn on and it's week one against Denver. Mm-hmm. But that's he's going to start there, right? We know that everybody yeah, knows that. Absolutely. And, and Nick Gates is going to be their center. So then you look at okay, you know, is Lemieux even fully healthy and able to take that on in week one? I mean, he has been practicing, but he was still rotating in. But whether it's him or Ted Larson or Kenny Wiggins on the left, is that your ideal God help scenario? Them if it's Kenny Wiggins, I'm sorry. <laughs> God help right. them. Yeah. Okay, there and that would I, I can't see that happening. I, I mean, and also, yeah, I know they like him better uh, yeah. than we do, but man, if they go that route, that would be a recipe for potential disaster. Right. And then, and then, um, you know, right tackle. I know I, I saw you reported something on this and I, I think it's dead on, you know, it's the idea that, you know, they like Pert, but if Nate Solder gets healthy and, and they're saying we need our best five on the field for the first snap we take, Nate Solder certainly could be that right tackle. Um, but then it right wasn't out of the realm of possibilities, but Nate Solder getting hurt, put a little wrench into that. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, if he's, if he's banged up, then that's not happening, but, and then the, the final thing I would say, and this is one I really kind of honed in on because I do feel like it's kind of still not talked about enough. I think Will Hernandez, he had a great off season, according to what judge told us. Right. And we know that he works his butt off and that, you know, he's great friends with everybody on the line. There's good chemistry there. Um, he cares. He works hard. He's a guy who has Daniel Jones and anyone else's back. If there's a late hit, he's the first guy there. He and Gates. But he is prone to not only some of these false starts that start you off on first, first and 15 with your hand behind your back, but also like on that final two-minute drive on the second day against the Browns, on one of the key late downs in the two-minute, he just got, you know, beaten about right off the line. I mean, it was about a half second and he lost his man. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, Pert, I think, didn't give up the sack, then Hernandez would have. And when we talk about Daniel Jones and evaluate him and the O-line and the offensive as a whole, I think we've seen in these last two years, there are plays, obviously, where or drives where they move the ball down the field. There is some good protection. He makes some accurate throws. But when there is that breakdown, and Jones gets hit two seconds in and the ball hits the ground and it's a turnover in the red zone. Right. So now people are talking about the quarterback and ball security, 
But I do think that for the Giants' best interest in giving Jones the best chance to succeed and clean that stuff up, I do think they need a player at right guard, whether it's Hernandez getting way better at it or upgrading that spot. You need someone who's just not going to give up that drive-killing pressure, even if he's been good on the seven plays prior to that. You just can't have that absolute catastrophic one mistake on that play. Right. I mean... It's still, it's still a question mark for sure. That, that offensive line. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I'm just, how much did you hear about Odell and how he's looking out there? I'm just, just at a curiosity sake. You, you know, I know he did not really, I guess, do much of anything when you were there. Yeah. He, he actually wasn't on the field the first day. He was out there on the field and ran routes against air with Mayfield throwing to him the second day. Looked really good, uh, you know, against air. I mean, he, he was, you know how he does it too, like where he wants to get into the drill. So he's kind of like bouncing around, standing near drills as the Giants and Browns are doing one-on-ones against each other. And, you know, right. I had my camera on my phone ready to go because you don't know if he's going to slip in. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, unfortunately, the Browns didn't make him available. I did run into him and talk to him briefly. And, you know, nothing's, nothing serious or specific other than just, you know, it seems like he's doing well and in a good place. Um, you know, I, I do think that my, my feeling is number one is that the Browns sounds like they have him on a schedule where like they have him, you know, two days off, one day on two days on one day off and they're taking it slow. Kind of like what the giants are doing with Barkley, even though Odell was a little bit ahead of him, didn't start the camp on pup. Uh, but right. You know, he, he was on the field talking to Shepard and Barkley after right before Shep threw down with Troy Hill. <laughs> and uh, that was quite the scene. But yeah, no, I think my big takeaway from Beckham is that, first of all, the Browns haven't made him available to any media all summer, including the local media. So they're definitely hiding him and protecting him leading up to this pivotal year for him and the Browns. Uh, but he did seem like he was in a good space and he looked healthy to me when I saw him run routes. That's what I would say. Real quick on that little scuffle. I mean, it just seems so weird. No, so nobody caught it on camera. It was happening while you guys were talking to Daniel Jones, I guess, right? And then uh-huh. after the after the preseason game, they're all the two of them are chummy together. And do I get the, does something not seem right to me? Like I'm I'm trying to you know comprehend this all from a distance. It does, something seems up, you know, something weird about it, right? Yeah, apparently, well, yeah, our colleague Dan Duggan is the one who saw them after the game kind of hug it out or whatever. But so you always have Jordan on the beat, right? So I'll give you a pat on the beat. You know, this is the perils of training camp and not on the beat. (laughs) On the beat. That's right. That's right. Let's get the jingle. (laughs) So, you know, you know how every camp and team does it differently. And so the way the Browns had it set up was you could stand, there were two fields and you could stand on one side or the other. But if you were on the fan side in the bleachers to get to the interviews, you had to go out of the entire facility and around on the street and then all the way back and in the other side. So a few of us tried to cut across the fields at the end to get quickly to the interviews. If we had been allowed to do that by security, we would have been standing probably 50 yards away and probably heard and seen the fight when it happened. But we ended up having to go out and around and down. And then we're talking to Jones. And as we were making our way down there and interviewing him, it all happened. And so everybody's kicking themselves. But Jordan, the most surreal part of it was Sterling Shepard is kind of behind us to the side and he's huffing and puffing. And I actually hear one of the PR people ask, you know, say that he needs to put a shirt on. And then I hear somebody say Slayton has his shirt. And I'm just thinking, I'm re- remembering Odell in the locker room, like, okay, put a shirt on for your interview type thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's Shepard, ter- Shepard but it is always shirtless, by the way, that's, <laughs> right. a, that's a Sterling but, Shepard move right there. Oh, no doubt. But apparently, you know, he'd had his shirt ripped off or he ripped it off during the fight, but no one put two and two together. And then I still have video of him. And, you know, first question to him was, is it nice that you guys got right up to the line, but didn't cross it today. And this guy looked us all in the face and just said, yeah, you know, you know, we know how to get aggressive, but not cross the line and this and that he had fought Troy Hill two minutes prior to that. So it was a any chance scene. that they're messing with everyone and they didn't really fight and it was messing no. around. No. So I, you know, I was doing a lot of that, like, wait a second, who was it, you know, confirming, 
triple confirming who it was, but there was a, there were a couple of photographers who had video. I think it was news five Cleveland and the AP had video and photo combos of most of it. Um, and obviously you missed the, the funniest- first few seconds, you see like Shepard getting pulled back at the end and I, yeah, which, and it certainly looks real, but the whole thing just, I don't know, seems to make little sense anyway. I, yeah. In the end, uh, I don't think anybody really cares except, you know, Joe Judge told them not to do it. So uh, but <laughs> whatever. Right. They're going to handle it behind it sounds, closed doors, they said. Right. They're like they always say. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like I guess people's accounts of it who were right standing there. And there were a lot of players there were that, you know, after a hard practice where like I was told there were a couple at least one hit by Hill on Shepard that maybe crossed the line a little bit during the practice. And I know we've seen some of those videos. Uh, but I guess Shepard went up to say something to him, something innocuous. It wasn't like a fight starting thing. I mean, and Hill, I th- Hill thought he was coming for him and swung at him. Was if, the if story I know anything I about Sterling Shepard, though, he likes <laughs> to talk a lot of trash. He talks no more and he is intense. And, and I'm look, this is I'm not I'm not saying this is a negative for him. For sure. I, you know, this is kind of what you want. From him, but he is he is pesky. He He gets in your face. <laughs> You know, he really gets into it. And I, so I don't know. I'm not going to say uh, I'm not going to be here, <laughs> sit here and be like, oh, Shep went up to him and was all nice and friendly to, you know, I'm not, I'm not I have a hard time sitting here knowing, kind of understanding what Shep is like, that, that that's, that's kind of how, you know, he, he, he would go about it. But uh, so real quick. Let's since I got you here, let's rip through a couple questions. Saquon Barkley week one. Yes or no? No. No. Okay. Why not? Well, you know, I, I guess there's a chance he's in uniform and then kind of dialed back. I just don't buy that. If they're being as cautious as they are with him, I don't buy that. They're going to suddenly ramp him up to real football, you know, in the first week of September in practice, and then just throw him out there in a game on September 11th. Like I, to me, he's not far enough along in actually taking hits and seeing real football contact. So that's, That's an educated guess, obviously. We're all making informed. educated guesses at this point. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's that's an informed speculation, but that's yeah. if you make me choose one, that's what I'm picking. All right. I'm, I would actually probably go the other way. But anyway, Kenny Galladay, yes or no, week one? Uh, yes. Yes. I think, um, I think with him right now, it seems like they're just being super cautious in order to get him to that game. You know, I Agreed. think if it was like regular season, he'd probably be out there practicing or whatever, but because it's not, they're just being safe for Denver. Kadarius Tony. Ooh. Uh, I know I was uh, right before I asked this, I was thinking to myself, this one is just like, you're totally just guessing at this one. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. no one has any idea what is really going on with Kadarius right. Tony and him just, you know, not doing anything now for uh, full practices for four months, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm with you. You know what? I'm going to say no. And, you know, like you said, it's a guess, but I do think a lot of times people make this argument about like a rookie quarterback, maybe a benefit you to stand on the sideline and watch, but especially because of how much time he's missed and how good of a camp the guys in front of him have had, especially Sterling in the slot. If he's not fully healthy and, you know, he was hit hard by COVID and he's coming off this and hasn't been on the field, you know, why rush it if he's not a hundred percent? And I mean, You've seen it out there too. I mean, they're using Jabril Peppers as their top punt returner still, despite the other people they have on their team right now. CJ uh, Board. <laughs> CJ Board's in the mix, right? Yeah. yeah and so. again, a lot of preseason reps for sure at, at, at punt returner. Yes, he is. Uh, yeah, no, I guess I would go in the same, I would lean in that same direction with Tony, but I would also uh, say that. I really just have, uh, you know, no real feel of that situation of how that's going to play out in three weeks from now. Uh, so you're right. We'll it, it is certainly the murkiest one. There's no doubt. Yeah. Kyle Rudolph. No. Yeah. To me, that might be the easiest of the four is Kyle Rudolph. Uh, it's yeah, just hard to uh, see him being ready in three, you know, three weeks from now, having done so little that we've seen during training camp. Yeah. And the one thing I would say about Rudolph too, is I, I talked to him back in June and he told me he wasn't going to miss any games. And, uh, you know, maybe that was just hopeful because I, you know, I really think it clearly something has happened along the way in his recovery that either was not anticipated um, or that he was just, you know, as an athlete was being overconfident, but 
Yeah, you know, I don't I'll think anything's the- changed since the start of training camp, though, because going into training camp, I was told it was going to be close and close and probably about 50-50 of whether he was ready for the start of the season. And it looks yeah. like that's not far off, that he's probably it's probably just a little bit further than they thought. So, But if, if maybe something went, it was a little bit slower, the process earlier than that, uh, that's definitely in the realm of possibilities still, sure. Yeah, I'm just I'm just preempting all the all the uh, the trolling by just saying, listen, I take it on the chin. That's what he told me. I reported it, but it looks like he probably won't play that. So, you know, go go ahead and go ahead and say I was wrong because I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, look, you know that situation has been strange from the start. Uh, you know the whole Gettleman thing of the other day too with the Kyle Rudolph was was bizarre, bizarro world. So. It just kind yes, of was. this just kind of go, fits right along with the uh, everything that's happened so far with this. So there we go. Um, yeah. uh, okay, so so that those are those are the injured guys. A little quick Pat Leonard uh, question, right? Yeah. Hockey, football. Uh, what's the biggest difference in covering the two sports? The biggest difference in covering the two sports, well, it's the amount of travel. I mean, there's no question about it. And it's the the deadlines you deal with as a writer, too. I mean, you're covering in right, hockey. You're covering traveling. all night games. Yeah. I mean, like 90% of the games are probably games. night, I assume. Yeah. And, there, you know, there would be games. There's a lot of arenas where if you wait to go downstairs, but when the game is over, you wouldn't even get to the locker room because of the elevators or whatever. So. You end up, you know, filing, you know, uh, most of your story prior going downstairs, watching the the last five minutes on TV as you're pounding away to finish your story. You know, it's nuts. Um, you know, I think that's probably the biggest difference is the schedule, you know, uh, covering hockey. And I would say probably the same for baseball and NBA is not for people with families. <laughs> so right. I, was, I always I was say it's a re- enough, it's a red. Yeah. They say it's a recipe for divorce. Like when you cover baseball. <laughs> There's no doubt like it, you know, I was lucky enough to essentially cover hockey prior to having a family and, and now be in the NFL as, uh, as being home or is something that, uh, that needs to happen. So yeah, that's that, the professional that's was, route you have say. to take, but you still, you yeah. still have written stories in your car before, correct? Oh yeah. I, I mean, people would be probably shocked at how many I've written on my phone, like without my computer at all. Yeah, you I know, have a story for people later in this episode of kind of along those lines. Like, yeah, that's just that's just how it works, man. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would say too is the obvious, but the NHL is obviously a professional league, but this is the United States and not Canada. So as much as I had a diehard following, and I did in New York and in hockey for the Rangers coverage, and I did a ton of extra stuff, you know, blogging and all that, the nuts and bolts. You know, when you when you jump over to Giants and NFL and you write a column on Eli Manning or Odell Beckham or John Mara, whatever, you know, the traction when you live in New York, it goes, you know, if I lived in Toronto, it would be the opposite. But it that sounds obvious, but obviously the exposure and the response you get on social media and simply from everybody obviously changes the second you step into the NFL from the NHL. Yeah, well, it could be negative, uh, regardless of whether you're covering the the reaction from the of the fans could be negative, whether you're covering hockey or football, as I'm sure you've learned along the way. So that that is true, especially when the team is losing. Yeah, well, uh, you you've you've covered more Giants losing than you did uh, with the Rangers, I'm sure. uh, No doubt. The last like five years, that was that was a worse run than the Rangers have had, uh, probably forever. (laughs) Uh, at least in yep. my, in my lifetime, they have they haven't they they've been pretty good. Let's just say that. So yeah, they went to they went to three conference championship uh, series in in five years in my five years on the beat, including a Stanley Cup final. So certainly a change. <laughs> and now you're looking for your first winning season. Were you here in sixteen? Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for that, remembering that, Jordan. I'm glad I made a mark. You know, appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> was it? <laughs> <laughs> I know you came Got along. I know you came along around the Josh Brown incident. I was trying in my head to recollect yeah. what year that was. Was that sixteen? Or that was, was that sixteen? Even but I that was sixteen. But I missed the free agent bonanza that year. You know the right. So, so you all the came press, on at the beginning yeah. of that season, basically for like right at the start. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I jumped right when the Rangers were eliminated by the Penguins that year. And I was basically, it was like a month later. So what would that have been June maybe, or, or mid or early July, I, I jumped on. So I was there for giants camp, but I hadn't gone through the rest of the off season. It was just kind of hit the ground running, you know? See, fans can't blame you for them starting to decline. Like they do me. Like I came in 13. <laughs> See, you, right. you came yeah. and they won, they won the first year. There you go. Exactly. I was good luck. Yeah. Redirect all your hate to Jordan. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was London and, and, and all that and all that, you know, big Ben and his, uh, you know, switching to the slick back hair in year two. I mean, I was, yeah, that was all that. (laughs) One of the all time press conferences was Odell Beckham, who we mentioned before when he's in London and the whole Josh Brown thing is kind of like going down and there's like, you know, uh, paparazzi type, uh, English reporters there. So it's like everyone's getting peppered on like, it's like a combination of like, uh, you know, serious questions about uh, domestic violence. And then it's followed right. up by like some, like what jacket you wearing, you know, from like English tabloid <laughs> paparazzi. Like, this is, oh man, that was, that was, a, that was just awkward for sure. I thought, I thought you were going to cite the presser where McAdoo told us about the motivational, uh, poems and stories that he read to the team. And one of them was that poem, if, oh. <laughs> and, and then somebody asked Beckham about it. Cause McAdoo had told us he read it in a team meeting and it was like this big inspirational story. Everyone's going to write And Odell basically said, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. <laughs> he couldn't remember. He didn't, he he didn't pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a, that was a classic one. One of the classic moments. There were, there were plenty of Ben McAdoo classic moments, but all right, Pat, we appreciate you spending the time, go back, spend some time with the family, just back from Cleveland, back on the road in new England again this week. Uh, we'll have you on again sometime later in the season. Appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. Take care. On man. to the next one. Feeling like you need a marketing degree and an extra day in your week to successfully market your small business? Let Constant Contact do the heavy lifting for you. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has powerful tools that make it easy to grow your audience, engage your customers, and sell more to boost your business. Now, in just a few clicks, you can launch a marketing campaign that's tailored to your business and goals. That includes email, social, SMS, and more. So you can sell more, raise more, and fast-track your business growth. Plus, you can always count on Constant Contact's award-winning customer support for guidance along the way. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Ah, yes. It's time for your favorite part of this podcast, where I answer all your deepest, darkest, giant's questions and giant's after dark. All right, here we go. We got John Marachanian, Monmouth County guy, who says, who is on the bubble that would be a surprise cut for the Giants? Well, as I mentioned before, I think Corey Clement and Eli Penny are kind of fighting for that spot there. So those two guys, to me, are in that mix. Uh, David Sills, I know he's been great. Uh, in the preseason, and he's been good in training camp. But if he's your fifth, sixth wide receiver, don't you really want him to play special teams? And here's the other thing. If the Giants cut David Sills, can they get him onto the practice squad? Or is another team willing to take David Sills and put him on their active roster as a strict receiver who doesn't do a ton on special teams? So I think there's a possibility you might be able to even still get him on your special uh, on your practice squad so to me he's still in that mix on that on that big bubble on the defensive side uh Reggie Ragland is a guy I look at I know the Giants signed him this offseason possibly to start alongside Blake Martinez uh didn't look like he came in in the best shape and now they've got a bunch of these young guys pushing him guys that they're playing inside who maybe were originally outside guys like Carter Coughlin uh, you have already have Tate Crowder there. So to me, Reggie Raglan could be uh, one of those guys. And maybe, just maybe, I have been very impressed with Raymond Johnson, young undrafted rookie. If the Giants want to keep him, 
on the active roster, does somebody on the interior of the defensive line sort of get left out of the mix? Now, it's not going to be Leonard Williams. It's not going to be Dexter Lawrence. So now you're in the B.J. Hill, uh, Danny Felton, or Austin Johnson. Are Danny Felton and Austin Johnson sort of the same guy? Do they need both those guys? I think that's going to be a question. If they want to keep Raymond Johnson, maybe one of those guys ends up out of the mix. Although I think they would probably look to keep those guys. And and again, Raymond Johnson, undrafted rookie, slip him onto the practice squad unless he has impressed too much where teams like the film that he's put out there. And then we'll see where that goes. So kicker is not even an option. I know everyone's raving about Ryan Santoso. Can I see him kick a field goal in like a game situation? Like, let me see him make a couple 40-yarders before I declare him capable of being a starting kicker in this league. Now, he has a huge leg. Seen that in practice. But let's see him make some field goals in a preseason game or in some live drills against other teams, at least, where, you know, you you can feel confident in putting him in there. So, uh, hope I answered that question. Nick Rose, also on Instagram, says... Why do you think Gettleman hasn't brought in a veteran pass rusher? I think that's because they want to see what they have here first, right? They have all these young guys thrown into a pot. You're talking about Lorenzo Carter. I'm still considering him young. Ellerson Smith, we haven't seen yet, but Carter was injured a good early portion of camp with like a little calf thing. O'Shane Zimenez, who just came back. Aziz Ojolari, who uh, was banged up a little bit, but I heard he had a great week in Cleveland. So, which is huge for the Giants. I mean, that that is really big for the Giants. The fact that he had a good week is very encouraging uh, against live competition because they need one of these guys to pop. Uh, they have Ryan Anderson also is in that mix, but I mean, he also was injured as well. There's just a lot of guys in there and they want to see what they have first. Trent Harris has played pretty well. Uh, he's a veteran, of course, but... They want to see what they have first, and then maybe they'll add somebody later. I think there's a belief that you can get a guy to, to you know be in the pass rush mix later on, a veteran who basically just comes in and contributes as like a, a pass rush specialist type of guy. So I think that's why we've seen that, uh, that approach here. We've got Eric Campen at Tree Amigos on Twitter says, What's the possibility the Giants carry seven wide receivers on the roster? It seems there are a lot of intriguing prospects, especially in that category. Do you agree with Judge's decision not to play Jones in the preseason? I think I answered the the Judge's decision not to play Jones in the preseason. I don't mind it much. He's going to play in the preseason. So he will play against the Patriots. The plan is for him to play more than a half at least. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, Seven wide receivers? Don't see that, by the way. I really don't. I mean... You keep one of them on the practice squad. That's just a waste of resources. You're not going to see seven wide receivers, uh, especially when two or three of them are going to end up doing anything on game day, uh, potentially, if that's the case. So, no. We have the next question. Rusty Kuntz. Okay. Uh, I can't believe I just read that out loud. Anyway, (laughs) I actually have a friend, by the way. No joke. I mean, this might be a bogus made-up name. But I do have a friend named Josh Kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z. Spelt the same way that Rusty here does. So uh, that's why I can believe, and I'm going to believe for these purposes, that this is a real name. Anyway, you can imagine where that's going with it, with that name I read earlier. You mentioned in a previous podcast, Rusty asked, you mentioned in a previous podcast that the year everyone was hyping up improvement in Eric Flowers game. You were able to call their bluff. Do you see the same thing this year with Andrew Thomas, Matt Pert, or do you see a marked improvement? Well, I don't think anyone's sitting here really puffing them up the way they were Eric Flowers. Now I haven't seen that with them. Pert has looked okay. I thought Andrew Thomas has looked good, but the difference in this one is they had some guys eventually they were going against that summer. It was like Olivier Vernon, when he decided to turn it on, would just smash Eric Flowers. Uh, JPP, I believe, was there at the time also, too. When he turned it up, he would smash him also. Now, you don't have that guy. You don't have those guys there for, to see Andrew Thomas go again. So he's been good so far, but I, I can't say with any sort of certainty that I feel completely confident because 
he played, I think it was three snaps against Carl Lawson. And, you know, the first one, there it was like a misdirection, so he didn't have to do much. The second one, they had two pass rush reps. One was he did an okay job of pushing Lawson around the edge. Two was the one where I think Kenny Wiggins let up a sack. But if Kenny Wiggins didn't get beat so badly, Andrew Thomas kind of didn't have his hands. It kind of let Carl Lawson from the Jets around the edge and didn't really have his arms on him. So it probably would have been a troubling snap. And so that, to me, is the most telling evidence I have so far of what Andrew Thomas is going to be, and the results were eh. So I've been more optimistic of what I've seen from him this summer, but I also still open to making a real evaluation on where he's at. So uh, that's where I stand on that. And next question. Uh, at Real Danger Close says, can you speak to why judges choosing to play starters against Belichick and the Pats? Anything to do with their connections from the past? In regards to joint practices, I think that's partly why maybe he he's going to try and sneak Saquon in, but really, no. The answer is no. They plan from the start of training camp, I believe, was, and this goes actually probably way back before training camp, was handle the third preseason game, because remember, there's only three preseason games this year instead of four. They handle the third and final preseason game this year, much like they did the third preseason game in the past, and the first preseason game and the second preseason game, because they have to make cuts a little bit earlier this year, five at a time. There's another five coming. I'm taping this on Monday. A lot of you, by the time you're listening to this, there might even be more cuts. The fact that that is the way the system is set up now makes them want to play the younger guys early and the veterans get their work in later. And the Giants have the two joint practices too, so really that's part of their preseason. So that is where we stand on that. At Judges, Joe Judges Gavel, at Gavel Judge says, who is more likely to get cut, John Ross or Ifedi Odenigabo? Both seem like they could be surprise cuts, Ross, due to injury. Yeah, I think John Ross is the answer there. And the answer, and it was it's basically strictly because of injury. I mean, if he can't, if he's not healthy and he can't play, it puts him in jeopardy. Now, money does factor into that one a little bit. The Giants invested in John Ross. I believe I have to go look. He got a million dollars guarantee. I don't think Odenigabo got that. Now, I could look that up. We could figure it out. Uh, I'll come back to you next time. But the, a lot of times with these things, you got to follow the money. Joe Judge says, you know, he's not going to do that. It's about he doesn't care where you're drafted, where you came from. But let's be honest, it plays into everyone's evaluation, especially from the people upstairs who were the ones who decided to pay X player X amount of money, blah, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, at Wyatt Fellman at Little Wyatt Pimpin says, do reporters know which players aren't vaccinated based on restrictions? Always see Saquon Ingram and Adore wearing masks on the sideline. You, here's the thing. You can deduce that it's a possibility that they're not vaccinated, and it's probably a pretty good guess. But now there's also the thing of, okay, some of these guys, they still have to wear the mask if they're in the process of getting vaccinated. So in regards to maybe Saquon and Adori, I believe that the two of them are probably in the process of getting vaccinated at this time. And so they're still wearing the mask. I don't know that for a fact. Uh, and We'll see how that like plays out. But it does, for the most part, indicate that the guy either isn't fully vaccinated or uh, they're not they're against getting the vaccine altogether. So uh, or there's a possibility some of them just decided to wear them. They're just going to continue wearing the masks. So you don't really know. You can kind of guesstimate. And also they have to wear these special um, sort of like spit spit guards on their helmets when they're not vaccinated or fully vaccinated. So if you look at that and you look closely, you will see which players are not completely vac fully vaccinated yet. So uh, I, th the answer is it gives you a clue, but you don't really know for sure. At Dan Brown 2398 says, who's the best fantasy pick at their ADPs? That's average draft position. Is it Kenny Galladay or Sterling Shepard? And now I don't know their ADPs off the top of my head, uh, Galladay, I'm sure, is higher than Sterling Shepard. 
But I'm going to go with Galladay regardless because here's my thing with Sterling Shepard. And I like Sterling Shepard. He's the kind of guy you want on your team, uh, your real team, like the Giants. Like You want that kind of guy on your team. He could be a good player. But he's always been a little hit or miss. And he's not in the greatest offense. And there's a lot of different people who need are going to need to get the ball this year now. And he has an injury history. He's the kind of guy where you play him in fantasy when the matchup is right. And when, when maybe Galladay's injured, too. So that's the situation there with with Sterling Shepard, which makes me think, no matter what, I, I'd rather have Kenny Galladay on my team for fantasy because he has that upside. He has that potential. Where you're going to want him as one of your top two receivers. He has that uh, touchdown production, the much higher uh, touchdown equity for sure. So for me, I probably lean towards Kenny Galladay for fantasy purposes. Now, doesn't mean that Sterling Shepard might not lead this team in catches. I could, I totally see a path to that happening. But with all these targets, I still think he's going to be a little up and down. There's going to be games where he's just not not targeted as much, and you know he's going to be a guy who does game, a lot of games like six catches for forty five yards. And for fantasy purposes, that does you no good. Like you, you that does that, that's not that's not enticing. So uh, we'll we'll just we'll just see how that goes. Uh, but I I would lean definitely towards uh, Kenny Galladay. Last question at Darcy JMD Big Blue. He Joseph Darcy. He says, "What do you think of the play of the backup O line? I think they were better in this past game." Uh, and Look, the interior of the O-line is still a question. Jonathan Harrison made it a little bit easier to stomach because he proved to at least be a serviceable backup center for them. So I think that was big. The guard position in the backup is definitely a question. Chad Slade was all right on the edge. But here's the thing, and that's why O'Shane Zimenez had a great... And the, the, the offensive line was okay in that game, backup. But that's good. Usually, and this is why O'Shane Zimenez, like, it's a, you liked what you saw from him. And it's important that he at least he did produce against the Browns backup line. But the thing is, you expect a guy like that, who's probably a guy who's going to be in your pass rush rotation to some degree, to excel and look dominant against second string offensive tackles. Because usually second string offensive tackles, a lot of these guys can't even really play in the league. So he should dominate those guys, which is why I think Chad Slade... Played pretty well most of the game at right tackle. I thought he was one of the better players on the field. And so when your backup tackle can do that, that's actually really good, even though he, I think he let up a pressure or a hit or maybe even a sack late in the game. But when your backup tackles can basically limit the pressure for most of the days, that's pretty good. So I, I think the line did better. But the real test is this week when the starting offensive line gets back on the field against the Patriots. So there we go. Uh, that's it for this version of Giants After Dark. On to the next one. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sports book of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, let's wrap up this episode. I'm going to do a quick Jordan on the beat. This is where I tell you what it's like to cover the Giants, work for ESPN, or cover the NFL in general. And we're going to New England this week. There's joint practices. I'll be there. At ESPN, we don't do a ton of preseason travel. So since the Giants did two joint practices, I'm going to get to one of them, so we'll get to New England. It's the closer one. But it reminds me, the Giants usually play the Patriots in the preseason, so they alternate. It's been up in New England and then back here in New Jersey. So one of these years, it was up there in New England. I remember I was working for NJ.com, the Star Ledger at the time. I think my my partner must have been either Nick Powell or James Cratch at the time. And uh, I don't remember which one. I don't remember 
taking a car ride with James Cratch in that regard. So I'm probably Nick Powell. So anyway, we're at breakfast at a place in sort of rural New England. So could have been in Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island. Not really sure. But we're getting breakfast at a diner-ish type. It wasn't a, a Waffle House, but like a, that type of place, basically. And we finished breakfast. We're in the car, and all of a sudden, Steve Weatherford gets cut. And Weatherford was a significant player for them, uh, especially big performance in the Super Bowl in the 2011 when they beat the Patriots. So it was a very notable guy that they're cutting. So I remember pulling over on the side of the road, making phone calls, writing a story. And I think I mentioned this before. If you want to get into this business, you better get used to that. Stopping on the side of the road, making phone calls, reporting something, tweeting something, whatever it is, sending emails, that is part of the deal. Even when Ben McAdoo was hired, I remember pulling into the parking lot of a catering hall because somebody had told me uh, that McAdoo was getting hired by the Giants as their head coach. And uh, that's where I reported that from. I sat in that catering hall parking lot. And this was like coming home from the airport. And I was the only one there. It was like a you know Tuesday night you know, in, in a random catering hall parking lot, writing a story and uh, reporting stuff. So that is part of how this business works. You better be willing to pull over on the side of the road and do some reporting, writing, etc. I do it all the time. And also because I don't live that close to the stadium and the facility, I'm in the position where I'm in my car more than someone who would sit, who would actually actually probably lives, you know, 10, 15 minutes from MetLife. So puts me in that position where I'm doing that. And also first two years I covered the Giants, I basically had a, I was still living in Philadelphia. My wife was working in Philly. So those were long rides. And when something happens, pulling over in rest stops nonstop, again, part of the deal, no matter what, you know, cause you're just on the road a bunch. So that, that even if, even if I did live in, close to the stadium, there'll be times when you have to do that. So that's part of the gig. If you want to get into this business, you're going to do that as well. Hey, thank you everybody for listening. This is a double episode week. So we'll have one later in the week after the joint practices with the Patriots. I'm going to try and get Mike Reese, my buddy. We're both going to be out there. I'm going to try to get him to opine on what he saw from the Giants because I love to get the perspective of fresh eyes. Anyway, Tell your friends, like, subscribe, spread the word. We're growing this podcast, and you know where to reach me. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, email, TikTok. You know the deal. I'm Jordan Ronan. You're listening to Breaking Big Blue. See you next time.